0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the Georgia Today podcast from GPB News. Today is Thursday, March 9th. I'm Peter Biello. On today's episode, Georgia lawmakers and the NAACP are asking for a federal investigation into Wellstar Health System's decision to close two Atlanta-area hospitals, Governor Brian Kemp is highlighting the need for more workforce housing across the state, and professional volleyball is coming to Atlanta. We'll have the details. These stories and more coming up on this edition of Georgia Today. Georgia Democratic lawmakers, local officials, and the NAACP are asking federal officials to investigate Wellstar Health System over their decision to close two Atlanta-area hospitals. State Senator Nan Auroch said yesterday she and others have filed complaints with the Internal Revenue Service and with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services' Office of Civil Rights. They claim Wellstar illegally discriminated against Black people and violated its tax-exempt status when it closed Atlanta Medical Center South in East Point and the Atlanta Medical Center, a health care provider for many low-income residents that was one of only two Level 1 trauma centers in the city. Wellstar cited falling revenues and rising expenses when it closed the hospitals. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is highlighting the need for more workforce housing to accommodate demand from economic development projects across the state. GPB's Benjamin Payne reports. Speaking at the Georgia Logistics Summit in Savannah on Wednesday, Kemp said the majority of economic investment he's seen since taking office has been outside Metro Atlanta. To that end, Kemp has proposed a rural workforce housing fund to help local governments boost their housing stock.
1: So we maintain our quality of life, but also continue to have a better quality of life for those working Georgians that are literally helping make and develop the products that you all are shipping around the world.
0: A study from the Georgia Department of Transportation projects the greater Savannah area will grow 34 percent by 2045. And an economics professor from Georgia Southern University who spoke at the summit called Savannah, quote, the hottest market in the logistics industry right now. For GPB News, I'm Benjamin Payne in Savannah. The three white men serving life prison sentences for killing black jogger Ahmad Arbery are appealing their federal hate crimes convictions. Attorneys for Gregory and Travis McMichael and William Bryan cite legal arguments made in their original federal trial. They argue that race did not factor into their clients' motives to hunt down and kill Arbery. Tish Nagisi, a first-term member of the Georgia House, has died at the age of 59. Nagisi died yesterday after being hospitalized for several days. No cause of death was given. Nagisi said on her website she got involved in Democratic politics when Barack Obama ran for president in 2008. She previously worked for the Democratic Party of Georgia and was a delegate at the Democratic National Convention in 2020. The Fayetteville resident represented a district that includes Atlanta suburbs in southern Fulton and northern Fayette counties. A growing number of people are caring for an aging loved one at home, but many of those caregivers can miss the signs when a loved one gets sick. GPB's Ellen Eldridge has more.
1: That's especially difficult when a family member begins to decline physically or mentally. When that happens, caregivers need more support. Mary Caldwell is a gerontologist with Town Square Sandy Springs, an adult daycare center. She says something as common as an untreated infection can turn to sepsis and kill an elderly person.
0: If there's dehydration going on, if there could be a UTI, UTI specifically do raise the uric, acid levels and will affect behavior.
1: UTIs are the most common type of bacterial infection in adults over age 65. For GPB News, I'm Ellen Eldridge.
0: 20 years ago this month, U.S. forces invaded Iraq. The U.S. government's stated goal at the time was to destroy Iraqi weapons of mass destruction and end the rule of Saddam Hussein. While the U.S. did accomplish the latter, it turned out Our information on those WMDs turned out to be less than reliable. What followed was years of military effort to stabilize the country at a cost of thousands of lives. This week, a symposium presented jointly by Columbus State University and the National Infantry Museum looks back at the war and the lessons learned. It begins tomorrow. Joining me now to discuss it is Dr. David Kieran. He's Associate Professor and Colonel Richard R. Halleck, Distinguished Chair in Military History at Columbus State. Dr. Kieran, thank you very much for speaking with me. The start of this conflict was for me a moment kind of like 9-11. I remember where I was when uh, then President George W. Bush uh, made the announcement that this war was going to start. I was in college uh, at the time. Where were you?
1: I was teaching high school in Connecticut. I graduated from college in 2000. And so the fall of my second year uh, teaching was September 11th. And then uh, you know, year and a half later uh, was the the beginning of the Iraq War, and so I remember vividly being, you know, with high school students in a in a town that had a lot of military personnel living in it, thinking about what this war would mean for the nation.
0: What was the dialogue like among those you were teaching in, in your community? Because in mine, it was very anti-conflict.
1: It was it was a mixed uh, mixed feelings really. There there was a, a, a number of people who were very skeptical of the war and and very concerned that it was a departure from uh, the fight against Al Qaeda that it was a, a war of choice rather than a war of necessity uh, that it would lead the United States to get bogged down in the Middle East and then there were also many people who um, saw it as a necessary fight and were reluctant, uh, and many others who were reluctant to speak out against the war and, and who uh, saw the need to um, to really rally behind uh, the troops as they went off to war.
0: I remember at the time in 2003, hearing a lot of comparisons to Vietnam, that once we were in, we were going to be stuck in something like a quagmire. It seems to some extent that that turned out to be true. We were there. We caused some instability, and we tried to take on the responsibility of fixing things, but you're the historian, so you tell me, how do things look from your perspective? Does it compare to Vietnam?
1: Americans have been comparing conflicts to Vietnam almost since the, the moment the Vietnam War ended. But there was a lot of discussion of the idea that uh, this was a war that the United States had entered, uh, not of necessity, but of, uh, of choice, and that it would lead them to to become bogged down for, for years. And, and certainly that happened the United States did end up having to make a much larger commitment with uncertain, you know, for a long time, uncertain results in terms of of the success of of rebuilding Iraq and creating a stable state.
0: How successful were American forces in stabilizing the country? How
1: successful the United States was in stabilizing uh, Iraq is a question that historians and policymakers continue to debate. Certainly, the U.S. had worked very hard to quell sectarian violence and Uh, build a semblance of a stable uh, governance in Iraq. But there are still a lot of open questions. You know, we're still seeing what the effects of the U.S. war are on the Iraqi people and their well-being.
0: What about mental health? You've written about the impact on mental health among those who've served in the military. What about those who have served in the Iraq war? Where was our mental health care system when those men and women were coming home from this conflict.
1: It's really important to understand that the United States did not enter Iraq thinking it would be a prolonged conflict of of the sort it turned out to be. It was the first war of of any length that the United States had fought with an all-volunteer military, and it was the first war that required multiple deployments uh, of, of troops. And so there really wasn't a mental health infrastructure In the United States military that was up to the challenge that this war posed. And so that meant that um, military mental health providers, people in the VA, military leaders had to work in real time to figure out how to understand the mental health consequences of these wars and how best to treat uh, soldiers and their families as they were returning. And and as, as one person said to me, we were trying to change the wheels on the bus while the bus was going 60 miles an hour down the highway. And uh, the military worked extremely hard to develop better protocols for uh, understanding what the stresses soldiers faced were. And so they made a lot of progress. But at the same time, there are still real needs uh, that have been and continue to exist in terms of uh, identifying service members who need uh, care, encouraging them to seek help.
0: We talked a moment ago about questions that are still up for debate With respect to this war among historians, academics. This one is probably another one of those kinds of questions. But with the hindsight that we have, to to what extent was this war worth the cost, the cost of lives, the cost of treasure, the cost of reputation to our country? That remains
1: the most significant question that Americans have to debate. And the 20th anniversary of the war is really, uh, the war's beginning is really a, a great moment to do that. Certainly, we have now know that saddam hussein's program of weapons of mass destruction uh was not robust and was not in uh as much of a danger as uh the bush administration had argued that it was we know that some of the intelligence going into uh that led into the war was not as reliable as as we might have hoped it would be and so that does open up the question of of that we need to continue to ask of, of, under what circumstances should the United States go to war? And, and in particular, whether this war was a necessary war. And I think that um, we're going to see uh, continued debate and, hopeful, and, and, and and a renewed look at that as we as we hit the 20th anniversary
0: dr david kieran is associate professor of military history at columbus state university and he's taking part in the iraq war a 20-year retrospective symposium which begins tomorrow in columbus and is free and open to the public fbi agents have returned to the iraqi government and artifacts stolen from the iraqi museum in baghdad in 2003 The ivory object, a furniture fixing depicting a sphinx, has been on display at Emory University's Michael C. Carlos Museum in Atlanta. An FBI statement says the museum bought the artifact from a third party after administrators were shown a fake provenance. The museum gave the object to FBI agents in December. The work of art was dated to the Iron Age and the 7th century BCE. This year marks three decades of inclusive theater by actors with disabilities at Jerry's Habima Theater in Atlanta. The program of the Marcus Jewish Community Center is marking the big anniversary with the production of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. GPB's Amanda Andrews brings us this audio postcard.
1: When I was a kid, I wanted to be a cartoon character really, really badly, and um, theaters, including musical theater, gave me that chance to become um, whatever cartoon character I wanted to be. Oh, you look so beautiful. Oh, yes. We do. My name is Jesse Thomas Durden and I play the stepmother in the show. Come along, girls!
0: Girls! Um,
1: I won't lie, when I first heard I was got the king, I got a little nervous because uh king is a very different role for me. I'm Patrick Robinson, I play the king.
0: Don't have any king crap! Where are you're about to say. I hate to see that written on a menu. Like a comment on my disposition.
1: I've always played more of a comedic kind of role, but I think it's cool because it shows that, I mean, the directors trusted me. My name is Matt McCubbin, and I'm the director of Cinderella. Hands over your head
0: and out.
1: Having to teach choreography to this population. Is really fun.
0: And we're on a roller coaster. Whoa, it this way. wiggle your
1: fingers. And in a lot of ways, it probably would sound like occupational therapy, maybe, to a, or physical therapy for other people. I think it's always about finding creative ways for them to use bodies and be comfortable doing it as
0: well. And try to do some jazz hands, shake out your ribs, flip your wrist back and forth. This really isn't B. that special. Is I am Kim Goodfriend, and I work in the theater department. Everyone does something very well. And everyone, some people struggle to read, and so we teach by rote. Um, club feet. Okay, we're going to figure out a way to help you move so that you will look and feel beautiful on stage. That's a human thing. That's not a disabilities thing. I also do acting, like, in other theaters, and as well with um, other people to get them to encourage them to... You know, come out and for them to, you know, go for it as well. My name is Katie Rule, and I'm I play Portia in the show. Every girl
1: in the kingdom wants to marry the prince, including you, Portia, uh-huh. and
0: you, Joy. Uh-huh. And so I always thought being an actor just brightens your horizons.
1: I'm a stage manager for Habima Theater. Amy Schwartz. What I think is special about Cinderella particularly is that we are going to pull more um, children in as audience members. And in Cinderella, there's a whole song about It's 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 possible. And that there's something about that where you have a lot of children in the audience where families can then say you know, can have their minds changed of what is the possibilities of people with special needs. It's
0: possible, it's possible. It's possible. That was the cast and crew at Jerry's Habima Theater in Atlanta. Their production of Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella opens tonight. And League One Volleyball announced today, Atlanta and Houston are locations for its first pro team markets. The league's inaugural season begins January 2025 and will feature six teams in six cities across the country. In choosing locations for its first pro-team markets, the league considers factors including women's volleyball fandom, volleyball spectatorship, and arena availability. The league also announced today the addition of Haley Washington to its pro roster, which already includes Olympic gold medalists Kelsey Robinson and Justine Wong-Orentes. All right, we're done with this edition of Georgia Today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Got a lot more news coming out of this newsroom. To stay on top of it all, best thing to do, of course, is to subscribe to Georgia Today. So take a moment and do that now. And we'll be back with you in your feed tomorrow afternoon. If you've got feedback, we'd love to hear it. Send us an email. The address is georgiatoday at gpb.org. We really do read those emails, by the way. So send them along, georgiatoday at gpb.org. And if you love this podcast, make sure to leave a review. That helps other folks find it. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.